Welcome aboard, everybody. Welcome to Captain Mediocre's Haunted Tiki Bar. Grab a drink, have a seat. This voyage is going to be quite the crazy one, or it's going to be pretty deep, at the very least. It's going to be on a topic that we've uh, we've discussed before, but uh, I think it's going to have a little more meat on its bones this time. Tonight's discussion is on the freedom of morality, and might be wondering what I mean by that. So, here's the thing. Throughout, throughout history, throughout, throughout the existence of, uh, of mankind, we've always had the basic instinct of two things. Our general survival as individuals and the survival of the species as a whole. And we've done so through a myriad of different ways. One of our most successful ways was in the formation of groups in society where our common ideologies um, helped to create uh, a system where excuse me, um, where, where it worked to the benefit of all. And that has been rather effective to this, even to this day, where we've now expanded to, from the local to, to some extent, to a global extent. And now, given with the objectivity of of the success we've had as a species in terms of survival, clearly, uh, as a social as a social species, we've come to essentially figure ways on how we interact with one another. Because, as as creature as creatures as we are, we are quite complicated. And perhaps simple at the same time, we're a paradox. What do you know? So, okay, maybe I'm not necessarily on point here. But the thing is, is that the question I've had in mind is that with so many different societies throughout history to, to this day, we've had a myriad of different moral grounds and standing points that we've had but it's also come to change over time and much so thanks to the at the i don't know if you want to say the detriment but maybe but maybe perhaps that's the case thanks to technology and how rapid it's expanded and has expanded upon uh, societal norms, morality for many of us has changed significantly. Many, many old ideas have come and gone, have been challenged and and changed, with few and far in between have withstood this test of time. 
Well, with that being said, that is one advantage that morality has. It's it's malleable. But is that the right thing to be? Should morality be as malleable as it is? Or should it be a bit more rigid? Because there's a lot of things about morality that's become a paradox of sorts. We've talked about in the past how murder is itself a paradox, for instance. How many of us in law would dis- would have- we have agreed that as a species that to kill one another is a bad and horrible thing. And yet something like war exists where we essentially as a nation, as nations agree to, uh, to murder one another. Then you go on the more local, on a much smaller uh, plane, for an example. Uh, there was a story that, uh, that I happened to come across. Just one example. And I'm not going to mention the person's name or anything like that. I have nothing against them, but here's a little story. This mother, her son asks her if she, if, if he can have $10 and she refuses. He asks why. And she goes, well, I, I already bought you clothes for one thing. Uh, I also pay for your food, and I pay for the roof over your head. And the kid goes, well, yeah, but that's part, that's called raising a decent person. And the mother didn't really have anything to, you know, to retort that, so she ends up giving him the $10. Now, in face value, that seems like the right thing, and, you know, fair enough. But at the same time, couldn't you argue that you could theoretically be choose to be a terrible parent? Now, I don't know anyone to this day who would, you know, willingly choose to be an awful parent. But that also comes with the idea that, you know, choosing to be an awful parent comes with consequences that are horrible. You know, like getting your getting your child taken from you, facing prison times and fines and all that stuff. Well, you know that all that all attributes to it, and that's something that is because this, we all have agreed that it's not the wisest move to be neglectful and horrible to your children. But if that's the case, if we have all pretty much set the obligation, then is it? Then does the more does the obligation set the moral, or is it because we cho- we have chosen time and time again to be, you know, to invest more in our children, where we now see it as something that we would do, even if those restrictions weren't there, because then you move because. N- we can't really, you know, experiment with that anymore. We'd be insane to consider that otherwise. We would con- we'd be insane to drop those uh, those regulations and then think that 
you know, parents would choose right, would still choose to do the same thing. We wouldn't know. Because if you look at something, I don't know, like California, for instance, California currently is, for the lack of better terms, under fire. Because a lot of it, I mean, it comes from one example, the, the, can we call it anti-theft laws? I don't even think so, because what is anti-theft when you're permitted to, by law, steal from stores as long as the value is under a very specific amount? I don't know why they chose $965, but that's what they said. Any penny more, and it's now a felony crime. No, any penny higher is a higher is a felony class client crime. Otherwise, the stores can't stop you and the police won't stop you. And that removes all that removes essentially the restriction, the penalty that comes with it. And there are plenty of people taking advantage of it. Enough so that many businesses are shutting down and leaving the state. They're not going to they're not going to absorb the costs of that. Are you insane? But yeah, I'm sorry if I if I went all over the place with this. It's just that I have been under I've been thinking about this for quite some time. Because I don't know if any of you have noticed, and I'm fairly certain you have, we have seen a, a, to put politely, a challenge to literally everything we know that constitutes morality. Maybe I'm the one, maybe I'm the fool who just noticed it, or Maybe I did just put it off until it's gotten so bad to the point where I couldn't ignore it anymore. But yeah, I'll lay this question on you. Do you think that morality is should remain malleable? Should it be more rigid? How much how rigid can it be before it before it becomes too unwieldy or it becomes too uh, too restrictive how malleable can it be before it becomes too unwieldy and does it stem from personal obligation or does it stem from soci- society sociological obligations what are your thoughts I know I know I've said quite a bit. I think when you look at societal structures in place right now, there has been a, there's been a definite paradigm shift in different areas, mostly in bigger cities and m- much more population dense areas. And what ends up happening is you get a specific uh, mentality in the society that you are currently residing in, or portion of society, I should say. 
and you have a consensus on how things are run. They may be slightly different than another area in the region that you're living in, but for the most part, there are still parallels in place. People adhere to it relatively consistently, but obviously you have outliers and this is also why you have law enforcement in most areas to be able to enforce said laws in place. Now, obviously this is different than regional and continental rules. If you are, I guess country rules would be the better choice. Federal would be a more, more effective statement. And those are more generally agreed upon across the board. But even if you look at that, those, those lines tend to be blurred as well because federally speaking, let's take, for example, cannabis laws. Cannabis laws as a federal federal uh, jurisdiction are illegal. They have been. It has not been lifted. As, as of this recording, they have not been lifted federally. But there are numerous states who have already decriminalized it to one extent or another, either medically or totally with a bunch of caveats, obviously, because of taxation and uh, all the bureaucratic red tape that comes along with introducing a, you know, mind altering substance into the pool of legal substances. Even if it's only minor, it still changes something about you. I mean, you could say the same about cigarettes too, but that one, had a lot, a lot longer time to be able to, you know, dig its claws in. And as it stands now, looking at the, looking at the, uh, the cost to a person to be a cigarette smoker is not even remotely cheap either. So it, it is what it is, but it's already been stated that there would be no prosecutions on a local level. And when you have that situation, it, t- it kind of takes the teeth out of the federal prosecution capabilities because federal capabilities tend to have to rely on uh, local jurisdictions to execute a great deal of the federal dictates. So in in and of that, you have that, you have that bending. Go ahead. No, I was like, yeah, to an extent. I mean, technically, if they're as if while they're not caught, yeah, sure, then they rec- then rely on the uh, on the local enforcement to be able to actually do something. But once once ensnared, then that's it. I mean, federal no, federal law overrides uh, local and state law. I mean, I know it does that here in the U.S., so that's a whole, I mean, it's a whole it, other mess of things. It does, but without without any kind of cooperation from, from the regional and local law enforcement, it's nearly impossible to get any kind of tags on anybody for that particular crime. As it said, it's already been stated, if, if, the, if, the, if, the, if the state government isn't going to prosecute in any meaningful capacity, it would take an act of God for the, the uh, federal jurisdictions to actually be able to snag anybody for that. And when you have entire areas 
in say Colorado who have dispensaries and such, the ATF isn't going to be able to break into those places, especially if the federal, if the local law enforcement starts countering them in any meaningful way. It's also the reason why fe- why decriminalization of it federally has been such a hot button issue as of late. Well, decriminalization is a different thing than legalizing something entirely, because when you decriminalize something, you are not necessarily making it illegal. You are just significantly reducing the minimum uh, the, the minimum requirements for it to be an elite uh, an illegal offense. It's so, true. Very true. So, the, 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 but the thing is, it's a it's baby steps, especially in something like that where. So where, where you have in industries have, that have been quashing the use of uh, cannabis and hemp as a natural resource as one of the major stifling points for marijuana becoming much more uh, widely available. True. True. And, and as far as your examples are concerned, uh, the, deteriora- the deterioration in California is something that is uh, is definitely an acceleration of a great deal of the uh, rules that have that have been circumvented in the past. As somebody who's worked at retail for as long as I have, the stories I've heard from people who've worked in loss prevention either as an officer or as somebody who just does inventory control in general, it's one of disdain for the lack of control a business has over their inventory in the face of consumers who don't feel like paying. Whereas before in the seventies and eighties, if you were caught shoplifting uh, they can do pretty much anything they want to you within reason, and you know, sort of, you know, between roughing people up, handing them over to the cops, any number of things, depending on the scope and 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 breadth of the the crime, it was something that wasn't out of the purveyance, and they were people specifically hired to enforce these rules in ways that would deter people from going and thefting any particular location from be it a small place to a larger place. The department stores obviously had more money to be able to afford better, uh, you know, boot stompers, but even the smaller places, the owners could do whatever, do anything within their power to stop anybody from taking their stuff. Cause it's, they've paid for it. The, the, the owners, uh, the owners who actually put the bill on the products, that's their product until it's sold to a customer. So they were given a carte blanche to do what they needed to do. But what ended up happening was thanks to a lot of the <clears throat> saturation of uh, personal suits that was starting to happen towards the end of the 80s and into the 90s and the focus on suing people as opposed to handling it in some particular resolution, a more personable resolution, you've things have shifted away from the company's favors in regards to this. And a lot of them have had to take, had had to pull, had to, had to get rid of their teeth when it comes to dealing with shoplifters. And in most cases, if you look now, 
I, I've had examples of people who told me they've actually watched somebody just take a 50 inch television, a flat screen, and just walk out the front door with that without paying for it. And they couldn't stop them. In fact, the employees were admonished or potentially thrown under the bus if they actually attempted to stop these particular thefts from occurring because it would affect the insurance that the companies are paying into. A person, yeah, a person gets injured on your property in any way, even if it's their own damn fault, potentially could be money out of your pocket. So when a shoplifter walks out the door with, you know, with a $350 to a $400 television, there's 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 bugger all you could do about it and the the degradation of of consequence for terrible actions as such because of the quote-unquote lack of materialism that many people seem seem to have have cultivated of late has created this weird paradox where the concept of property is viewed viewed as an antiquated view an antiquated structure in 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 uh, society bafflingly so in 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 my in my opinion i would uh, i would disagree only on the grounds that people push towards the idea i think it's only a farce only because uh those people the the ones who tend to uh, fight with that argument seem to be the ones who desire material things the most and are just simply to some extent justifying the seizure of said property they seem to understand the value of property and what it means to have property but rather than you know rather than earn it through, uh, you know, legitimately, they would rather seize it for myriad of reasons, whether they think that the current system is unjust and unfair to them, and they would rather just uh, go for it, or maybe they just do it just because, because why not? Maybe some people are anarchistic like that. I don't know, but... uh, I know for some, I know for many, it's not necessarily that they denounce the value of property, but it's rather the opposite. But they use, they try to convince you, they try to convince others um, to denounce the value of property so that they're left with the spoils. Well, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So, and if you look at the surface area, the surface logic behind it, the intent is uh, one of, you know, goodwill. People are attempting to ensure that everybody has what they need. The problem with it is, is when you get, when you dig down into that, into the area that you're talking about, it's not about need anymore. It's about want and the, and not wanting to have to pay for things when the, you know somebody who actually worked their worked their way to owning these things has them but the people who either can't for whatever reason or won't for personal reasons aren't willing to make the necessary you know transactions to get what they want or to work as much as that person is to get those things it's the problem it's the problem i feel with 
any view of a social social socialism or communist viewpoints. They're they're very much on the surface level of everybody should have what they need, and within that paradigm, it's hard to disagree with that. But like you said, it's usually a diversion for lar- for the larger. I want things what I want, and I don't care if I have to take them from you to get them and make it look like it's for the greater good. I mean, we have seen that throughout history. We, At least when it comes to those particular uh, political ideologies, we've seen them constantly, uh, constantly spew out, or I should say relay messages of, um, you know, of camaraderie, camaraderie and uh and goodwill towards towards one and all because that is the most basic uh thing it's not a these aren't terrible ideologies in terms of intention i wouldn't think that if in if we lived in the right you know in the right mindset in the perfect world where we all would be able to work together for the benefit of one and all without the fear of of uh you know being you know screwed over by our fellow man because it because it's a romantic idea to be able to work together in in well in brotherhood to uh for the betterment of all it's a beautiful romantic idea that i believe many many unfortunately uh they take the bait every single time because they think that for whatever reason, that particular movement will be the one to make it right. But what the unfortunate truth is, everything has its price. Everything does. And when you're trying to when you're trying to make reality uh, something so ideologically pure and beautiful, you will tend to find that it's going to have a deep, immeasurable cost, usually in blood. Well, when you when you hit those particular situations and the people who believe in those things, they generally don't mind paying in blood because it's never their own. Exactly. And exactly. that's when that, and that's where the uh, that's where the distortion ends up lying. With regards to our, our, what we were talking about before, it, it, the the California situation is just an exaggeration of what was already occurring in retail in the first place. It it is uh, to me it is the end result of constantly taking away. The, the, the level of inventory control that a, that a store, that a company has with regards to cons- with regards to consumer malfeasance. Okay. And I think that I think when you look, when you look at that sort of thing in the context of the state of California, it, it's a situation, it's another, you know, you know, road to hell being paved with good intentions. The intention for them was, they didn't want to keep gumming up their their jails with uh, low class misdemeanor situations, and they and they wanted to take some of the burden off of the off of the court systems with regards to a lot of that stuff because it was becoming 
a strain on them in, in a financial way. And they felt that they could absorb that loss in a different avenue. I feel it's completely and utterly stupid. It's one, I, it, it's, it's short-sighted in the extreme. I mean, I see your point. Uh, I mean, I can agree with the courts on that one, but I think they needed to significantly reduce that number. If, like if you're stealing maybe fifty dollars, you could put, you could you can get them and find them instead of arresting them. But nearly a thousand dollars and you're good—that's way too lenient, way too lenient on people. And and I will give them this: while there are plenty of people taking advantage, there are far far more people who aren't taking advantage of it. And that's the thing that I wanted to bring up. There is a, I believe you were the one who brought this up to me a long time ago on a minor situation. You remember the shopping cart uh, scenario? Which one was that? Where uh, the returning of the shopping cart, that's the one where there's no, there's no dilemma. There's nothing good about your, Every time you go to the store, you take a shopping cart, and when you go to your vehicle when to put you store your things, the polite thing to do is to simply return the shopping cart. Now, the shop now doing so grants you nothing. Doesn't do anything for you. You're not rewarded for it. You're not praised for it. It's not the biggest thing to do in the world. You also don't get penalized for it if you don't do it. No one hates you for it. No, there's, it's no cost to you not to do it. It's no cost to you to do it. And some people like to use that as a measure of a person's general morality. Because they are not obligated to do it. And it's not a big deal whether they do it or not. But it comes to because the idea is that do you still act do you still act morally? Do you still act accordingly when you are not under any um, obligation whatsoever? And it's just a nice little example to show that there are people out there that don't need to be um, they don't need to be pressured, obligated, or forced. To do to do the right thing, or I should say, rewarded as well to do the right thing, because it's not about any of that. It's about doing the right thing. Now, what that constitutes is a whole other story. But I think, I think that's why I ask: is it if morality is something that that we choose to do when we choose to be righteous? when we're not obligated to do so. Well, that's because, in, that, in that regard, it's, it's purely on an individual basis because any, well, any given person is going to, you know, have an avenue of different choices when it comes to what's considered right to do either by society standards or by their own personal code, whatever that may be. Sometimes those things intersect and, and in most cases, it, with regards to like the shopping cart scenario, you have many who 
seen over it's it's usually in regards to those situations it's often a choice it's often a statement of what would be the value in keeping it there's no real significant value in keeping a shopping cart one often you don't have a way to transport it two and three what would you do with it if you got it home often those those are enough to convince people to not take the cart if you're talking about on a by based on morality, no, I don't mean by stealing the cart. I mean just you know just throwing it randomly, you know, not returning it to where it needs to be. Just rather just leave it where you have leave it where it is. I don't think there's anybody who would act well minus the homeless. I know they've stolen shopping carts, but that's a whole other story. Um, but I mean like. There, when people shop, they just leave the carts where where, where they uh they leave it where they are rather than return them to you know that de- the designated spots where you where you're supposed to you know or where I should say where you're encouraged by the store. Sure. I think, but I think again, another issue at hand is it's it's a matter of convenience at that point too, because of the way most shopping areas are set up in the parking lot area, particularly there are enough cart corrals around where it isn't too much of a inconvenience for someone to go and place their cart in a cart corral so that it, be, it later may be picked up. That doesn't exactly. mean to, that, that that doesn't mean to say that people don't just leave their carts lying around. And I've been to stores where that happens. There, the, the, the at the end of the day, the the the, the rationale is is someone's going to get it regardless. Yeah, that's and that's fine. So, in other words, it doesn't really. There's no real crime and punishment to be, but a lot of people like to to see what you what what you, uh, what your morality would. Uh, what what your morality could be, or what your moral values would be, if you still, whether or not you would still return the cards yourself rather than have someone else do it, because it's the idea of how if you take personal responsibility for the smallest things, it is an act. It is a a sign that you are willing to be personally responsible for the bigger thing. And, I mean, I could see that, but also at the same time, you know, it's it's kind of, well, a, uh, a rather a moot point. I mean, I don't see why you would make such a drastic judgment over, over shopping carts. <laughs> but, you know, that's probably why a lot of people, why some people, you know, do that anyway, because it seems so, um, it seems so trivial, minor. And for some, sometimes that's the whole point, it's the whole point of morality. It's, it's not always the, the, it's not always the biggest things. The bigger things. It's not always about the bigger picture. Sometimes it's the small things that lead up to the bigger picture. Well, I mean, my, my counter to that would be look at look at companies like Aldi. Aldi charges a quarter for the usage of their shopping carts. 
the quarter goes into a machine. It unlocks the shopping cart from a string of shopping carts. You take it into the store. You use the shopping cart to get groceries, and you bring it said groceries to your vehicle and return the cart to get your quarter back. Is that really Even, charging it a quarter, though? It's rental is what it essentially is. Um, but if you look at the situation, often um, it minimizes the need for there to be a cart gathering person. But I've still seen carts floating around in the Aldi shopping, shopping lot, but it's not nearly as many as you would see at like a Walmart or a Target. It's, you know, I may see one or two, whereas at Walmart, I could see piles of them stacking up in different areas and quadrants of the actual parking area. It doesn't, it's never, it's never zero is the point I'm stating. Yeah, that's, that's understandable. I, I, I wasn't trying to, although that now just leaves me with another question, at least when it comes to that particular uh, topic, because now I'm starting to wonder, is it, is the money the incentive to get people to actually return that to return the cards or, or is it just something that people would do already without it? I don't know. Maybe I'm being a bit overthinking on this one. I mean, it's just cards, but it goes back to my point. There are clearly there are people that are willing to do things that are in their mind, the right thing, and they will do so without the what what without necessarily being pressured or or having so uh, societal um, obligations to them to do it. With that being said, is morality a bit? too rigid for us or is it something that is a bit, a bit too malleable I mean that, that's what we've been talking about for, for the past 38 minutes um, I, I want to give you another example of a situation where, real, where uh, morality is malleable at least bendable in, in some cases if you look at uh, if you look at it, the judicial system as a whole uh the actual adjudicators, whether it be actual judges or some sort of other judging body that that has the same authority, um, they're given a certain amount of free will with regards to how they exercise, uh, how they pro- how they deal with br- broken laws, and number of factors come into play with regards to those situations, the severity of the crime, obviously, the relative age and uh, demographic of the individual who is in who, who is being prosecuted and the uh, any other accentuating circumstances therein if given enough if given enough information and evidence a judge has the final word with regards to the uh um, the, the sentencing of the person being prosecuted and can, uh, you know, in mercy, reduce the sentence to something much more bearable, alleviate it completely, or go the other way and go draconian and make it as harsh as humanly possible as a way to 
send an, set an example in regards to a particular situation that maybe is more unique. It's the flexibility of morality given to, an, to a set of authorities or an authority figure in whole. It's something that is often, you know, played upon with regards to the actual accused. They try to play upon the, you know, the, the sympathies of the judge with regards to that as a matter, matter of tactics. And if, especially if it's an actual trial by judge instead of by jury, that it, there's definitely much more incentive to press the judge as a sympathetic ear. With okay. regards to with regards to jury, they're ultimately the arbiter of the fate of the individual as, as it is, but they're not the, they, they still don't have control over sentencing, and they still have the ability if they have been swayed by in one way or another to influence the the judge the judge's decision, even if the judge ultimately is the final word. Okay, so that is all well and good, and that's dealing with the insides of the judicial system, and that's perfectly fine. Now, what would you say to the exerting influences coming from outside sources? One particular example that I wanted to bring up was the, and I am not afraid to say this particular one, uh, BBC Women's uh, take, so to speak, on the idea of trying to push legislation for legitimizing teenage pornography. Now, I think the idea that a lot of people are getting confused with is that they have this notion as if though teenagers are permitted to watch pornography, which I am very confused by. Like, they're not permitted. They just find ways to do so. And they do so because they're not about to, once they learn about it, you know, not try and take advantage of it. But to come up with the idea that they should be, you know, a type of pornography that's, you know, quote unquote, appropriate for teenagers is, in my opinion, completely completely baffling absurd and ridiculous i mean if it was 30 years ago we this now not only would be completely unheard of the people writing that article would have been straight up accused of all sorts of horrible things if not arrested outright for even for even humoring the thought and now Nowadays, it's like it's the perfect time for them to, so to speak, to bring up that conversation. And I can't even believe that even has to come to the has to come to terms. Like, I'm glad it's only an opinion piece, but Jesus Christ, what kind of opinion is that? All right, so let's look at this. Uh, let's look at this from the from a from the perspective of the individual who is attempting to make this. Again, this is purely this is purely speculation on what their objective was at this at, at this juncture. Her rationale, at least as far as I could tell, was what you were saying. Teens already have access to it. Why not make it? You know, 
accessible to them. If you look at it from that perspective, it is abhorrent because when, when there are unspoken situations that we all we all are aware of, but say nothing about unless it's brought to the public attention. With regards to you know puberty and that kind of stuff, yes, sexual urges start to happen at the, at a, at a, in, during puberty, and with those particular situations, obviously there comes exploration and all sorts of other stuff. It's given to the process of a of human maturation. No one's going to argue this. No, there's there's no way to it's it, it's built into the bio it's built into our biology. We're not going to get past that. What you end up doing is you you're drawing a spotlight on something that's supposed to remain unspoken, and that lies the mistake that this person made. Is she incorrect? Yes, because if you look at the way she phrased it. And in, in in the way she was talking about it, it's very difficult to rationalize what what her thought process is. It just seems wrong, even if what she was attempting to do was to create a um a, a more more accessibility for something. Maybe it's, her objective was more of a health education aspect. I don't know. Is- that that's how it seemed to look like that because she was discussing about she was discussing on how it could be used to show them a quote unquote more realistic scenario where consent can be all, like it was supposed to be entirely educational i still i mean we were all teenagers at that we were all teenagers at one point education wasn't what we were looking for when we were looking for that sort of material, if you were looking for that material. Unless she was looking for something more transformative. Like here, here's the, here's the way you could, you could phrase it. I would like to have a better and more broader scope of health education material available for teenagers, something that they can use for their use in their own personal life. And can be used in the classroom. That seems ambiguous enough, correct? Ambiguous, yes. But now that would have leave me suspicious on the whole thing. But yeah, that that would be fine at the very least. Something a bit more tame to teach in health classes without actually showing them the actual friggin' thing. Yep. And... And that's what that's the direction that should have should have been taken with regards to this, because like we've all there, there's, you know, kids going to grab onto whatever they can to, you know, satiate whatever urges they have, especially if they're in a household where it's not really they're not really religious. And, you know, they don't re- the, the parents aren't too concerned about the material that the person that the kid's going to get access to, either because they're aware of it through. Uh, specific software or they are given to allow a certain amount of uh, freedom to their kid depending on their age usually within within that paradigm often it's between you know 12 and you know 16 17 so it's it, it, again at that point it's up to the, it's up to the the parents discretion on how they want to uh, you know, confront the child with regards to that particular material as a, as a rule of thumb I, I, I guess at that point you just have to 
really, you know, know your, know your audience with regards to that. Cause from what I heard, she got, you know, she, she got, she got bombarded on Twitter after she made that, made that random claim. So clearly that clearly nobody was really on her side in regards to that. I can't say I blame, I believe the person uh, in question deleted that original uh, that original statement but it got us it got caught wind by a new I, I think it was a news article bbc women who then essentially emulated that same that that same statement nobody liked it then either it's like i don't they, it's almost as if though they treated they, they considered the audience to be not smart enough to understand that they're parroting the same statement. It's like, do you think people are that dumb? Congratulations. This is why people are burnt and are essentially holding torches against you right now because they're, they're not happy with that. And I don't think any sane person would, but that just comes, it just comes to full circle. We've come to the point where, morality has uh, has become molded to the point where that is something being looked at to some as perfectly viable and okay. Now, maybe that's on a more subjective level because every, morality is to some extent subjective. But I think there is an understanding that there is a collective, uh, a collective morality that, in my opinion, should be a bit more rigid as we have this uh, social contract to, uh, that, that establishes this society. At least that's, that's, what, I, that's, what, I, uh, that's what I believe anyway. Especially if we're looking at towards the night, especially if these folks are looking for a more uh, a more global point of view, then yeah, we have to be at least somewhat together on these on these topics because otherwise, this is only going to get uglier as time goes on. Well, there always need to be a consensus when it comes to any particular. Uh, moral obligations or social structure when you have that dissonance is when you have when when people have to go back to the drawing board and honestly with regards to a lot of the things that are happening currently there definitely needs to be more uh, more deliberation than what has been given and this is not to say that there hasn't been deliberation and you know has it may or may not have been fruitful but if we're not if we're not coming to them if we're not coming to the table in good in good faith with regards to a lot of this stuff it's much more difficult to be able to sway a, a particular demographic to your way of thinking this is one of the major headaches with regards to California too is there is a, there is currently a democratic supermajority in place so they have carte blanche to be able to say and do whatever they want in most areas with very little friction from a counterbalancing 
force. And it's created a scenario where a majority of people and businesses are just leaving. And you know, I hear about it all the time with people just saying, we're just done with this area. Just tired of dealing with, you know, the rampant homelessness, the, the theft, the, you know, the, 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 the garbage, the, the human waste all over the place. These are things that, didn't and California – oh, no, no. That was San Francisco, just San Francisco, just made being homeless illegal. I don't even know how that works. I don't know how it works either. The funny part is is I've, I've watched a couple of videos that, were, that had uh, individuals who actually went out of their way to try and help the homeless in one way or another and had received pushback by the, uh, by, by the, by, by the city council in a couple of different areas. I'll send you the link to that video. It's actually pretty interesting. That's it's, actually it's, from, it's from a while back, but it's, it, it's pretty messed up the, the, what they ended up doing. I can agree to that. That is, that sounds especially egregious. Well, I don't understand why at the end of the day, you wouldn't want people to be, to better themselves in one way or another. And while it's not the greatest scenario for most people, to you know have to live on the street with regards to a lot of the tent you know the tent town the, the tent cities that exist in in differing areas it's much more uh sad that they can't have something much more permanent and the story pretty much had the the, the, the individual who was trying to basically give them much more permanent housing using, you know, plywood and stuff and basically give them a more, it was on wheels, but it was essentially a home. It was basically a one bed, it was basically a one bedroom, like rolling home. Might as well have been an oversized doghouse for what it was, but contrast that to what they had access to before it was leaps and bounds better. And it kept a lot of their wares, their, their personal belongings in a more centralized location where it wasn't strewn all about and dude ended up get, get, the, the dude ended up getting uh, uh, shut down by the by the city council because they had their plan on how to do things and they'd never executed it. They just destroyed his and then never went forward with their ideas. So it, it, it definitely is an unfortunate thing when it comes to that kind of stuff. Also, right. the problem with California is California is hospitable. So when you have a bunch of people who don't want who don't want to be poor in areas that have four seasons they're going to find their way to california so that they could be in an area that isn't going to have terrible weather at them i mean true i suppose um there's a theory i believe you and i discussed um a few months back about the uh, about the subjugation and the revival of the uh of the surf state, the peasant state, the way that it's starting to look look like, at least in certain parts of California, I think we can safely say that that's exactly what they're trying to do. Because as long as the as long as the people cannot fight, cannot resist, and are entirely dependent on the state then the state can do whatever it wants. There's an old saying um, 
there's an old saying that goes all the way back to uh, to Athens of ancient Greece, and it's the strong will do as they please, and the weak will endure what they must. And I think we're starting to see that rather clearly, at least on on those parts of the country. Agreed, but what you what's going to end up happening is that there, there's going to become an oversaturation of the of the, the the peasant class, as you were, to where there's no way to really rein them in, and this is when you have the peasant revolt scenario from from times past. You would, except the problem with that is that that requires an obscene number for for to do so some of the biggest rebel some of the biggest peasant uprisings in history failed despite their numerous amount if you look at the um if you look at the uh the peasant uprising during Catherine the Great for example during Ca- during Catherine's rule we're looking at close to 50 million people in revolt and she still successfully put it down and we're looking currently in terms of you know modern technology leaps and bounds in a span of 300 years so while technically we are these the modern day peasants, if we want to call them that, are in a much better shape than those Cossacks during Catherine's reign. So is the government. Far, far greater shape than Catherine's reign. And it's also on a much smaller landmass by comparison. So I think the odds are significantly worse, realistically, in my opinion, against the uh, against the folks over the government. Maybe I'm wrong. I'd like to hope I'm wrong, <laughs> because if it ends up being that corrupt, then yeah. Um, if it ends up happening that way, then it needs to it 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 needs to be destroyed. It needs to be crushed. It needs to be overthrown. But I think that if people make that attempt, they need to look carefully and look and understand what it is that made California as a state fail so significantly. Because many will be quick to blame one thing when. It may not be so at all. And that requires a level-headed mind and and an understanding of economics and politics before, you know, making a, uh, a rash judgment. I can agree with that, but 
cooler heads won't prevail in those situations, and we both know this. No, revolutions rarely do. I mean, you you look at what is ha- you look at what look at what's going on currently in most major cities with the great fluctuations that are happening with, with a lot of the protests that have turned sour in most cases. Rioting has been occurring and hasn't really stopped in any meaningful capacity. It might have been decreased, but the, the, there's still there's still damage being done. There's no real major efforts to rein it in in a way that isn't significant enough for it to not appear on a lot of on a lot of news sto- news channels now. With regards to you know the different channels covering it, it really depends on who you talk to. Unless you're on the unless you have boots on the ground there to be able to see exactly what's happening, formulating your own opinion is based on which channel you end up watching in that regard. And that in and in that you see a you see a fluctuation in morality as well. Some places are referring to them in one light, and the other one refers to them in a different light. Yep, absolutely so, true. So it takes away a great deal of the impartiality that needs to be in play. That a lot of uh, that a lot of these companies just refuse to actually adhere to. It's the reason why many people have kind of walked away from mainstream journalism as a whole. I don't fault them for that. You make your own decision on what you want to absorb at the end of the day with regards to information about the world you the world you live in, and I'm not going to I'm not going to admonish somebody if they decide that they want to go to somebody who's uh, go to another person who has an independent viewpoint, because independent independent viewpoint is what we, we, most people have come to hope for with regards to their the, their news. True. Sure. The idea that we want to be able to look at we want to look at the information at a neutral standpoint so that we can uh, draw a conclusion for ourselves. I think there's far too. I think uh, when it comes to the base of morality, bias has become far too prevalent in the current news media or mainstream media to allow people to make their own decisions. They're often influencing people to simply uh, come up with the conclusions they want them to make. And that has led to quite a bit of uh, a blind understanding of the bigger picture at hand. The problem is, is when you have so many different platforms vying for views, especially in the internet age where even the bigger companies are worried about clicks and view times and things like that. They're just trying to grab hold of people like fish in a pond and they're going to do what they need to do, be it using clickbait or deception to try and get people to watch their stuff. And even in stuff, even in, even in digital stuff like, you know, blogging and you know digital print the use of bait of baiting is very much something that forces people to make a decision haphazardly even before they start reading an article so that's the problem with that as far and, and that goes into the morality that goes into the morality of information which is in its own self a major headache 
because the, 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 the obligation of, of any given news source is going to be a 60, 40 split, depending on their, depending on the loyalties that they, they have in place. And most it's often to make the, 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 the country with which they're in origin look good in some way. And that's the 40%. And, and there's a little bit of propaganda and everything. Let's not argue with, let's not argue semantics on that. one. Well, of course. I think that can be. I think that can be go. Um, I think that can be go. That can go without saying. And that's also the reason why a lot of people tend to go outside of the United States when it comes to news, because when it comes to people, when it comes to other countries talking about the United States, it's much easier for them to be able to be more critical of what the United States is doing, and therefore oh. you have a bunch more people who go to you know, like the BBC or Al Jazeera in some cases to get their information. Well, of course, but I think that also comes with a bit of risk because, because let's say that, let's say the nation covering another nation already has a negative bias towards that nation. Well, naturally they're going to be more critical of them. Even if, even if the, uh, even if the story or the event is a um, is slightly more neutral, if not more positive, if not positive, it's just something that comes with the practice. With the practice, we unless they are something like I don't know, like China or North Korea, where they highly censor their news, uh, their their information. Um, you are likely still going to have to there while most are going to be relatively neutral bias is still something that's going to be a part of them, whether they like it or not. It's almost impossible to avoid. Agreed. And that's, that's a major thing that you have to contend with as a viewer. You have to be aware. You have to be aware that those biases are in place, and the information that you're getting is going to be slightly slanted in favor of that bias. When you have that, when you have that viewpoint going in, it's easy enough for you to be able to sift through what is, you know, spin and what is actual information. Yes. And it also helps if you're watching different outlets across the board to be yep. able to kind of create a mesh that is woven of the different differing uh, reporting to create a much more a much larger panoramic view of something that you want to know about exactly as they say there's more than one side to the story and usually the truth is somewhere in between those stories yeah well no one really feels compelled to go and reach further into the middle to make those kind of situ- make those kind of statements mm-hmm. because the view of compromise is viewed as an anathema of late, and it makes it so that having conversations with people who have a specific alignment is much more aggravating to an individual who just wants information and understanding. Because there are people who come to the table with, with ill intentions and have no interest in cultivating understanding. They just want their side to be correct in a situation rather than actually fixing a problem. It's a it's a it's a rampant situation that's been happening for at least in my lifetime for the past twenty to thirty years. I agree. And I, think, 
And I think affiliate, I think affiliation has become much more galvanized a, 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 a pressure point than it used to be. Whereas being somebody who's more moderate or much more down the, down the middle with regards to things is viewed as somebody who isn't going to stand with one person or another. So they're viewed as some kind of enemy. Be- and- oh, cool. Because this isn't, let's get this on. It, it has never, this isn't a new, this isn't a new phenomenon here. This is something that's always gone down in history for, for as long as history has been. And that's because uh, the idea of rational thought often conflicts with the blind allegiance. So, when you have folks that are that are only seeking to be the epitome the final say on on matters and you have and you have the audacity to question them well of course you're going to have to be suppressed in some way shape or form and i think i can agree with you on that it has gotten a lot more extreme at least Verbally, it's gotten a lot more extreme than it has been in the past 30 years. Because, I mean, back then, back when we were kids, I would argue that, you know, discourse was far more common and far more applicable than it is today. Nowadays, it's all about being able to suppress your opponent into being silenced. The problem with it is the obliviousness of the people around because anybody with two with two brain cells to smack together would look at that and go, well, why doesn't he want him to talk? When you, when you silence somebody, you're not... When you silence somebody, you're not... You know, confront. You're not making it so that they don't say so, they they don't say something negative. You're silencing them because you're afraid of what they're going to say in the face of what you're tr- what you're trying to push. Of course, I know, I, the, I know I butchered that saying, but whatever. No, of course you are absolutely correct because it's the idea that you may be able to turn turn people towards your your reason rather than theirs, and that's a problem. When you seize, when you have the, um, when you have the the right of logic, it makes others less malleable to the whim of to the whim of your opponent. So you either have to you either have to outthink them, or the easier way to do it is to simply silence them. It's true. And it makes it so that being somebody who is willing to come to the table and actually, you know, conversate about something much more difficult. And it replaces that want to be rational and, you know, bring everyone to the table to have a conversation. It makes it much more beneficial in the long run to just push everyone away in that regard if no one's willing to listen to you you're you're compelled to greater and greater lengths to try and get people to talk to somebody who they wouldn't normally talk to because you know they they have some sort of space cooties and that's literally the way i describe it. It, it, it it's it's literally the 
you know, the four, the, the, uh, the four-year-old, you know, kindergarten, ew, they have cooties kind of scenario, but in a, in a more modern, modern adult battlefield. And it's so mind numbingly atrocious. I would, I will respectfully agree. It is the, uh, it's quite unfortunate really to see it nowadays. It, and yeah, I, I will agree as well about them being essentially overgrown children who have in relative, in relative respects, uh, too much power to be able to, to just simply blindly swing and hurt others for ju- just in an attempt to try and look like they're correct. When if they if that was the only concern, then it would be un then it would be um you know it would be pointless to just it um it would be pointless for them to to muffle another person's um attempt at a say. But I think with that being said, I think we've covered quite a bit this evening. What would you say? Agreed. With that being said, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining this evening. And we will look we will be looking forward to seeing you again for next week's episode. Till then, keep your glass dry and ready for the next drink. It'll be on us. Thank you for listening in to the Captain Mediocre's Haunted Tiki Bar. We are humbled that you have given us your time to listen to us discuss things. If you would like to hear more from us, you'd like to see more from us, uh, I have personally a account on Twitter under the name of Ragnarok Knight. My co-host here also has an account on Twitter as well. He goes under the name of Punk Toast. We also have a Facebook page under the name of Captain Mediocre's Haunted Tiki Bar. If you would like to uh, check that out for updates on when we have our sessions. We also have our voicemail link in the show notes. We will be having voicemails read during the course of our records going forward, as long as there are voicemails to be, uh, to be listened to. Um, Any further inquiries on that, uh, do feel free to PM either of us on Twitter, or you can go through the actual Facebook page to ask us any queries as well. Thank you so much to all of you. Safe travels to you all. Cast off, friends.